Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about black magic cameras, uh, remote protocols, RTMP, SRT, all those things that are connected. It's slowly coming together. When we first saw it, it was like, uh, we'll see how this goes. Um, but all the pieces are starting to come together for us to be able to control remote cameras, get those remote feeds back to us. And we're going to talk a little bit about how we're looking at doing that. Uh, if you've got questions about that, go ahead and throw those into Makana. Also, if you've got general questions, uh, you can use this little QR code here uh, or just go to askofficehours.com and uh, add your questions there. You don't have to log in. You can just throw your questions right in and uh, we'll feed them into the system and uh, get to them. So um, so stay tuned, you know, go ahead and throw those questions in now and make sure if you're in Makana to vote on those questions so that we know what order you'd like us to cover them in. I have something cool to show you, though. <laughs> I, had, I had a whole bunch of these things, uh, and um, when when I moved out, we left them behind, and, so, and Marty Marty Brennis actually kept them. So um, these have you guys ever seen these little these little guys here? This this stuff here. This is like tiny grip. It's called micro grip. Let's see if I can make it go here. So so these are. It's just like a, a knuckle that you would have on a big C stand, except that it works on little arms like this so you can put them in through here and you can put them through i was just excited because i had a lot of them and marty kept them all in so they're all there but you can start to build little rigs like this um and we use them to it, it just i thought it'd be a little fun little thing for you to see this is super useful when you're trying to find like a little rig to hang a camera or or build something it's like an adult version of a rector set so um anyway it's uh it's kind of fun so check, definitely uh, check these out. These are micro grip. Um, I think that they're made. I don't know who makes these. I think well, Film Tools. I think makes sells them. I think maybe maybe Matthews. I'm not sure, um, but uh, they're slick. So I just thought I'd show it to you. Let's go to the first question, Mitch. Thanks, Alex. First question in from John Fisher in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Anyone from panel have initial thoughts on the newly announced Raspberry Pi Five? Good, Jonas. It's really cool that um, we're already seeing it. My guess is they waited till they were finally able to ramp up their production pipeline. There's so much innovation in this uh, specific one. It's really cool. They built their own uh, South Bridge or North Bridge. I don't know which of the ones it is. They're building their own chips now. They're building, um, they removed the headphone jack, which is a little sad, but now you have a UART debugging tool that you can just plug into. You have... Um, the two uh, in the past, you had a display and a camera SPI header. Now you have them joined. So you have, uh, you see those two there and either of them can be used as a camera or a display. So now you can do two displays or two cameras or one of each. It has a PCIe header. So um, the thing you'll see on the left that also looks like a, the camera or the display connector, that's actually PCIe connector. Right now they're still working out what cable to use, how to plug in an M.2, uh, PoE is still supported. You now have full 5 gigabytes on uh, each of the USB sockets, uh, still two HDMI outputs, but we actually have a decoder for HEVC 4K60 now, so that's going to be great that you're actually able to decode that video. Um, so about a 2 to 3x improvement on the speed in general, and yeah, a lot more like nice features and the pricing didn't increase too much. It's about five bucks more for the versions that uh, the are announced. Now? 
think it's like 75 for the 8 gig was the old price and now it's 80 and like 60 to 65 for the 4 gig or something around that it's great yeah um and now you can cool it and you can also run it with your old power supply but now it can take up to 4 amps over the 5 volt uh, USB-C input and then also support like more power hungry devices that in the past you had to um go through a usb hub um like uh we talked about in the pre-show there's now also a little fan and a heatsink and a little power button so now you have a button that on the side that you can click they also have one multi-led now that can show a state um if you use the new case you now have like a little button that you can push um we don't know too much about it yet because the os and the firmware isn't released yet but apparently stuff like sleep and wake on land should also be working soon-ish or is the expectation that it will work soon-ish and we're um, hoping that you can disable the turn off button in software <laughs> which looks highly likely right now that it's not actually like killing its power but it looks quite promising and uh, I'm pretty excited about it. Someone compared it with like a MacBook Air from 2015 which is like probably what twice as powerful as a Chromebook. Probably. I mean, um. <laughs> 4K. It's right now. It's hard to test it with 4K 60 playback of YouTube, because like YouTube blocks it somehow. Because why would YouTube sell 4K 60 to Raspberry Pi in the past? It makes no sense. Um, but two 1080p videos run pretty smoothly-ish. Does this so, have any impact on things? Uh, what or what impact would it have on something like Play B? I mean, as soon as. I'll get my hands on it. I'll probably be able to say more, but like we expect less issues and like less stuttering that sometimes can still happen. And this, um, this being a new generation that now with the new OS, um, hopefully there's also a better integration. We had a lot of issues with the last Raspberry Pi OS and like the headphone jack. Makes sense now that they removed it. They didn't want to spend too much time fixing those. Um, and what yeah. is it, you, does it and it, does it have a web browser built in? Yeah, so it comes with a, its own Chromium build, which is the open source version of Chrome that everybody right. knows from Google, um, and that is like optimized. So now the Chrome hardware optimization is also able to use the GPU cores that are on the Raspberry Pi, um, but that's a special build. And when you said it, it was two 1080p's, is there two HDMI outs or is it just two 1080p's so on the same page? Two uh, HDMI outs. They're advertised to and theoretically can do 4K 60. Mm -hmm. um, Each one at the same time? In theory, yes. In the past, it was like, yeah, everybody knows that that kind of ish works. Now, apparently, it works. Um, but I haven't gotten my hands on one yet. Um, you can pre-order them at like a couple of the authorized resellers, but a lot of them haven't done it yet and will start shipping on the 23rd of October. That's fantastic. I can see us, you know, someone, you know, using these for things like a lot of, you know, Mukana actually has a lot of pages <laughs> that are available to us and having that just, you know, having one of those just there serving up some of those pages to different monitors that I, that I might want without having to, ha you know, dedicate a whole machine to. It's pretty, pretty interesting. Go ahead, John. Uh, if your name ever comes after Jonas's, when you raise your hand, your Mukana, just unraise it and probably log off. <laughs> uh, next question. Jeff Cohen from Miami Beach, Florida, asked Alex 
Yesterday, you mentioned that you export the audio from Fairlight to finish in Pro Tools. Is it just based on experience in Pro Tools, as Jeff Francis mentioned, or specific capabilities Fairlight doesn't have? You know, a lot of it has to do with interface and and also the comfort of our engineer um, on the on those things. But I do believe that there are probably a handful of features that are in Pro Tools that that Fairlight is still closing the distance between where it's at, and there are plugins, there are services, there are interfaces, everything else. And Pro Tools has been doing this for a long time, and Fairlight is still, you know, coming up to speed in this area. Um, do I expect? Do, you know, again, all my personal stuff that I do, I do, I don't. I don't, I don't know. I don't really know. I, here's the funny thing. I bought the first version of Pro Tools three months after it was released. <laughs> so I, so I, I got in there very early, but I didn't keep up with it. So I, I don't have the skill set to, to necessarily, I mean, for me, Fairlight, of what I know in Fairlight right now and what I know in Pro Tools is almost even. So it makes sense for me to use Fairlight. And I think that unless you are an advanced engineer who has been using Pro Tools for five or 10 years, I would probably just stick with Fairlight at this point. You know, I think that I think it's going to keep on closing the gap. And what we can do to help them is to con continue to tell them what the delta is between Pro Tools and Fairlight because they have, uh, Blackmagic has an enormous number of engineers working on this. <laughs> so so it, they're going to keep on closing that gap. Um, I think that they have considerably more engineering uh, focused on Fairlight than than. Uh, than Avid does. So, so I think that there's, um, so I think that you're going to, you know, Avid has, you know, is, is installed into all these places. It's not going to go anywhere anytime soon. You know, the, you know, the both Media Composer and, and, and uh, Pro Tools are embedded into Hollywood. We just have to question how long Hollywood is going to be, how long that's going to matter. <laughs> so, so, um, you know, you know, the, the, uh, the, the strikes, while very um, valid, are probably going to change the business model pretty quickly. So we're so we're going to have to see what happens next. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it depends on your workflow too. Um, if you if you're working within uh, Resolve, maybe it makes more sense to stay with Fairlight. I understand the comfort factor because I occasionally round trip uh, stuff when I'm using Adobe into another program, just because I like it better. But um, just to point out, Fairlight's been around a long time, and it's a very robust program. So uh, it was don't expect hardware. any. Like yeah, was, you don't, you know, was, don't expect. Was, yeah, go ahead. Don't expect any problems with it. It's going to be a good, uh, a good tool to use anyhow. I mean, the problem really, that, you know, lies for you know for Avid is this. You have the triangle. This is the production triangle, and Avid and Pro Tools. Well, Avid. I mean, Pro Tools lives you know up here, right at the very top. This is what all the top stuff is being done in. So that's fine. But the media composer, you know, kind of lives in you know, this area, because things are getting finished oftentimes in Resolve. So it's up here. Um, it is up here. And then it's also this, this is just growing very fast of, you know, Resolve in the bottom of that pyramid because it's free, because it's, it comes with every camera. Eventually that squeeze becomes very, very difficult to manage, um, you know, for, for Avid. And so that's, it'll be interesting to see, you know, the new, what the new owners are going to do with that. Um, but, you know, there may be a point where I think Pro Tools probably has a much longer legs than, than Media Composer, but they're both going to, they're both embedded. They're not going anywhere. As long as Hollywood's there, no one's changing anything. Um, so um, the, but I think that the, um, uh, I think the Pro Tools is probably very, very embedded. And again, if I was getting started, I would just use Fairlight because it's a lot less expensive and you don't have to deal with that key. That drives me crazy. Um, go ahead. It, by the way, it's my, my, my frustration with Pro Tools has nothing to do with the money. I think the, the subscription's fine. It has to do with the the licensing of it makes me crazy. Just absolutely bonkers. And I just won't, I, I won't use it because of that. I won't put it on any, I have one, we have one machine that's doing some work for us on it. Um, 
but I don't do any work on it because I just can't. Um, I feel like I'm constantly dealing with the licensing key. Go ahead, Jonas. Yeah, I don't know that like audio tools are just bad at licensing. It's always like, oh yeah, install this licensing server and then input it here. And well, then... and I think the problem is, is that the two apps that I use the most are, are I mean, that, that use do audio is, is Logic and, and Resolve and there's no licensing issues. <laughs> like my license, my dongle yeah. is a Mac, you know, so um, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Jonas. And what I'll say is Fairlight is really great for technical fixes in the audio, like, hey, I have like somehow weirdly have left and right pen that I need to deliver mono. Like they have some really cool stereo fixers, uh, options there. That's where we use it a lot for like if you produce social clips and you need to make sure it's mono compatible. Um, that's where I use Fairlight a lot. Like a lot of technical fixes, maybe a little bit of fading and that's it. But anything more creative, most often the people are still like custom with their program like Audition, Pro Tools, anything yeah. else. But for like those really technical fixes, I love it. It's like so great. I just put the stereo fix on that whole track and I don't need to worry about it anymore. 30 seconds and the whole thing is fixed. And I need it. I use it a lot for the stuff that I work on because there's nothing I do that isn't, I mean, other than a podcast, all the things that I do with video have five, at least five channels, if not six or six, six or more channels in them. So um, trying to do that in Final Cut becomes cumbersome. If I, you know, to, to try to go out to 5.1 or or higher. And so I find that Fairlight works really, really well in that area. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, as far as the uh, plug-in on Pro Tools, it, in theory, you're supposed to be able to unplug it and walk it across town to another studio and plug it back in and have your plug-ins and everything else yeah. uh, uh, up up to snuff. Um, and I guess that fits into the Hollywood workflow if you're going to be I just, working. I just don't use hardware keys because I lose them. So I don't, I, the, the idea of the having physical keys is, is not something that's viable for me. I've lost too many keys and too much money related to those keys. So I won't, I won't license keys. Um, so it, it's the software licensing that is just a disaster um, on, on Pro Tools. And so, um, and, you know, the hard part is, is that, uh, again, I think that Pro Tools is going to do great for the next, I would probably say the next decade. But what they have to what they have to look over their shoulder is they have a company that's releasing all of this stuff almost for free and and coming very fast at them you know like you know that you know and that's going to be really um very difficult to uh to to avoid um and and i will say that the i think that there's some point where i started to really see all this integration between the cloud and between all the other bits and pieces of it's just it i do think it could be a nice environment if black magic can actually pull it off um next question from Alton Christensen in New York, New York. Has anyone had experience with or recommendations for using a Pulson mic on a guy with a full beard? Mitchell? Um, no, not with a beard, but I did uh, read your um, uh, more detailed question about your actual use of it. And the use in a, in a classroom, uh, in a studio... Uh, with students, not many of them have beards, by the way. Um, I think it makes sense because it's a low-end uh, microphone. It's not super expensive. And uh, it's almost um, sacrificial as far as mics go. You could lose it. Oh, $19 later, it's not that big a deal. Oh, you know what? how I heard that story? I went into B&H and I read somebody's recommendations. Sorry, Al Alton, I kind of yep. construed yep. that. But as far as a beard goes, I don't think you're going to have that much of a problem with it. If you leave it in its normal configuration, obviously you're going to have some issues with it. But what you need to do is, is you need to bend it at the, you know, right at the um, 
ear to come around the beard. So we've definitely done headset mics in general, but they can't come typically to be low profile. They come right down the side of your cheek and they should generally always end right just short of the corner of your mouth, not past it because you might get some plosives in there or, which are really hard to manage. So you go right down to the, just just short of it, kind of where where this crease ends is kind of where you want that that mic to sit. But how it gets there is up to you. And the Pulsen, um, I think has a lot of, it had it's too uh, the Paulson and the other one that we were using is too long. Um, so what you do is you get it, you cinch it to where it where it belongs. And sometimes with some of these those cheaper headset mics, the Paulson actually I think is 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 okay. It's the other one that we've used in the past where it's got a lot of mic length. So a lot of times we even have to do an L just to use up some of that space. But what we do is we put our thumb right on the right at your ear, right where it comes up over your ear. You put your thumb here and you grab onto it with your index finger and you pull it out like this and it will bend it up and then you can bend it back and have it come around the beard. But you do have to pay attention to that. And it's going to be, um, it is you know, going to be that person's <laughs> because uh, if people keep bending it in and out and in and out, it will break. Um, so, so you need to, um, you know, if someone's got a beard, you can get around it. You just have to make a, a wider loop that gets past all the whiskers. Next question. Next question coming in from Brian Taylor in Washington, D.C. What's the best KVM option for a server room? Rack-mounted Mac Pro for multiple producers to physically access in a stringent, cloud-unfriendly federal IT environment. Um, the federal IT, yeah, the, um, I, I think it's I-S-H-E, hold on, I-S-H-E. I mean, they, they make the, the uh, if, I, if I get this right here. Um, it is a series of acronyms that I, it's, or it's a series of, uh, it's not I-S-H-E, it's, um, I'll try to post it later. I, I can't, I can't think, I, I have a trouble, I have a trouble when I never know what the acronym means. I have trouble figuring it out, but there's a, there's a company that makes KVMs out of the, um, out of, uh, Northern California that, that when it comes to high end, put them in a server room. This is the ones that we use. Go ahead, guy. Yeah, take a look at, uh, Adder and A10, depending on what you want to do. Those are the two biggies. Yeah, the one that I'm talking about is not, um, uh, it's not the the most well-known one. It is just the one that when we go to large facilities, it's all, you know, very large facilities that are not um, cost prohibited. It's the only one we see. <laughs> so, so I just have to find it. It's, it's, it's a, it's a small company out of Alameda, but they make all the, all the ones that we, uh, that we use. I'll try to find it and I'll, I may reverse back to just put it in or I'll put it in the, in the chat in Makana. Next question. John Preto, Las Vegas, Nevada. New Meta Glasses, slimmer, lighter, 1080p, live streaming, image stabilization. What are your thoughts? Go ahead, John. So Meta had an event yesterday called Connections, and they showed off all their stuff. They showed the Quest 3. They t- talked a ton about AI. But then they showed the the new glasses, the new Ray-Ban glasses. So they have a Wayfair, and then they have another style, modern or something. Uh, but... 1080p live streaming from the glasses. I thought that'd be great for cooking or live streaming while you're cooking or riding a motorcycle or on a roller coaster. It looks looks really good on paper. I don't know. We'll see how it works. It's only 300 bucks. So the the issue really um, that 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 the problem um, with the with this is that if you're trying to record, not being able. I know that they have a way to do it with the. Um, uh, I know they have a way to do it with the camp with the with the phone or whatever, but the real power of Google Glass was that you could see a video in the screen 
of what you're recording. And, you know, shooting it blind, I, you know, I'm sure that people can figure this out, but it's really, I feel like people are, are kind of missing the boat on, on what is, what's really possible there. Um, it, from a point of view, not only of training or, or other things, but just communicating, this is what I'm, this is my experience. I shot some incredible footage of like my kids in the park and everything else, but it truly was my experience of that. And I think you, you could slowly get to know what those cameras are doing, but I really feel like you know, and I get that it's 300 bucks and you're trying to get it out to as many people as possible, but people are spending a lot of money on phones that they don't need, they don't really need. Um, there's a, there's a market there for something bigger and more expensive that will shoot those things. I think that the, the Apple vision pro is too much, you know, to, 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 for that, for that experience, but something that I've just never seen anything else that effectively incorporates that, that little, um, you know, that, that little video, there's a couple companies that kind of do it, but they just, their, you know, shake rejection and everything else is, you know, the stabilization is really not great. So um, anyway, I think that's the, um, that's the real challenge uh, for it. It's, I think that the other thing is you can't wear them anywhere because you have the same problem that glass has, which is, you know, people are going to be like, you know, I think that a lot of these have to have physical covers on them so that you don't, you know, you, you actually know the person's not recording. And I think that, that you know, I think that that's the, that's always going to be the challenges. I mean, even for me, I would be at events that, you know, with, with folks that were very connected to the class and they were like, you gotta take those off, you know, like, you know, so, so it's, you know, so I think that it's, it's a real the privacy is, is going to be a real issue for those cameras. They look cool though. They, they, you know, they, they look like fun. Uh, next question. Chirag Trita from Dallas, Texas. Jonas, great to see you on the panel. Can you please tell us how you were able to remotely broadcast with Joan Barker, or excuse me, John Barker from IPC? Go Jonas. Yeah, that was um, quite a thing. So apart from the Office House live stream, John uh, Barker from here to record and I decided we also wanted to do a little, hey, this is the first day, what have we seen? What are the impressions live stream? So I brought even more equipment than I already brought for the Office Hours live stream. I don't ask how much my carry-on was. It definitely was uh, within spec, definitely. Um, we used um, one of the live views that we had for office hours, and then we used our. Um, we brought some of our own sims that have a roaming feature, and I terminated them in Rotterdam so we could get into our infrastructure as fast as possible. Then we had a cloud um, server in AWS with vMix where we uh, got in the SRT feed from the live view. But then we also had a playout B to like show behind this. Uh, like b-rolls of what we were talking about and we had hr graphics um set up there as well so john was sitting on an ipad where he could see all the comments over a cloudflare tunnel and could just say hey let's talk about that one click it and in the cloud we added that overlay um, we also had a remote companion setup with that setup we could then like also cut in the cloud and then to see all of that we used um, OBS streaming using the web protocol into Cloudflare stream which then was embedded also on a custom website so we had like a really sub one second uh, low latency feed to see what's going out and then to uh, also make my life much more complicated we decided to build a custom multi-view within vMix and stream that to my channel so you have a bit of a behind the scenes of everything um, yeah, and then we also had a pep link that was doing a VPN and bonding to our VPC so we could just remote in secondary if Cloudflare tunnels would fail. It uh, was quite fun. I think it 
after I figured out why uh, my GH5 would stop uh, producing sound worked really well. And I think, uh, yeah, the shot looked cool outside. We had uh, Will Lily sitting by the road. The mix pre did a pretty good job of uh, amplifying the mics. Yeah. Sounds great. That's really good. If you, you know, maybe we'll persuade uh, Jonas and John to come on and do a behind the scenes, break it down, like how you, how you actually put it together. I mean, it's good to have it in a couple minutes, but we, we'll give you a whole hour if you, if you guys have time. So let us know. Um, IHSE, by the way, IHSE. Um, at IHSE is the KVM thing that I was talking about right before that. If you want to see like KVM at scale, these are like four U racks of KVM. Like when they're talking like 160 ports. Uh, next question. Sam Greenwood from Toronto, Canada. Are there any good co courses and certifications to learn about DMX? John. Uh, I, I uh, recommend the way that I learned, which is go out and buy some uh, of the cheaper lights, DMX fixtures. You can get them from American DJ and get a controller and start setting them up at your house and playing around with them. You'll learn really fast DMX. And then watch four or five videos on YouTube. That's the best way to learn DMX. It's not that complicated. And we'll do some labs. Um, you know, I think that lab, we're, one thing that we're going to start to think about, we're going to put out, so we're going to put out a, um, a, uh, um, a poll in the next couple of weeks that we'll leave up for a little while. We're going to ask people what time they want those labs. And I think that we're, we're looking at, you know, kind of moving things around or experimenting with that, you know, based on we've had some feedback that during the workday in the United States is not the best time for people to do labs. <laughs> so so uh, we'll still do them in the morning so that we can cover as much of Europe as possible, but we'll also probably do some in the evenings um, to uh, to make it more, make it available for folks who can't, who can't do it. We're going to kind of split those things up. But um, DMX is definitely on the short list of um, really talking about. We've got some good videos that Tlaloc um, has, and others have done talking about DMX, so you want to look at our um, background there. But I think it's, it, I definitely agree with John. You can buy uh, DMX lights for 20 bucks, 30 bucks. I mean, they're, they're very, uh, very inexpensive. And then you can start to play with those settings. And then it becomes pretty straightforward after that. I, I really, you can get a little hardware controller for them, but I would just go ahead and get some kind of um, Tech or uh, DMX King or something so that you can just go, uh, I don't know if John agrees with this, but I just think you should go, you know, IP to DMX. It's just a lot easier to start playing with it than trying to, you know, than starting the analog and then moving to something else. Next question. And this question is coming in via our QR code from Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas, Nevada. With Mac OS Sonoma, thoughts on the screen saver wallpapers? I, you know, I, here's the one problem is, you know you haven't been that innovative when everyone is only talking about the wallpaper. <laughs> Like literally, everyone's talking about the wallpaper. No one's talking about any of the other features that might have come out in Sonoma. So you know it was a sleeper when everyone's like, I don't know, I don't know what else got changed, but the wallpaper is amazing. So um, it, it what it does is when you get out of the wallpaper, the screensaver it slows down real nicely and does a nice transition. Um, so it's it's cool. Uh, it I think that the the thing that will catch up and and I haven't used it. I have, I'm going to put it on some machines over the weekend um, just, to, just to have a machine or two that I can test. I've got a lot of them sitting on my desk. Uh, I'm interested in the, uh, the, all the screen sharing and camera tools are the things that a lot of people are really excited about. Um, and so uh, I'm going to download and kind of play with those. But the screen sharing stuff that, that lets you basically start to build a switcher in the OS between you and your presentation or you and other inputs or screen shares, those are all things that, that it sound, looks like Apple is starting to um, get more effective at. And they're basically side, you know, basically moving around the Zoom team 
uh, meet, whatever. It's just you have that working on your OS and you're able to just deliver it as a camera to the to the scene and it's doing integration it's doing uh keen where you kind of have like a circle that ends but your head's sticking out and i don't know how all that's going to work but we'll see um but the, they're really doing some pretty innovative things there that i'm kind of interested to see you know what's actually happening so i'll be doing some research on it we'll see how it goes next question sam greenwood from toronto canada what's a good white balance card that doesn't break the bank uh, jesse if you want the uh, best non-bank-breaking white card, you get a sheet of paper and use that. Just please wait till everybody else has gone to lunch if you're going to bust that one out on set. Um, a little bit up from there is the X-Rite uh, Video Passport, which has a gray card on it. And gray cards are something we don't really care if they break the bank. The amount of time it saves us in post, especially for matching multiple different kinds of cameras, is uh, it's so valuable to us. It's just a tell-me-what-it-costs accessory. Mitchell? Yeah, in a pinch, uh, you can grab a piece of foam cord that you're using as a bounce card and uh, use that. Not quite the right white, but it'll get you closer. Yeah, and be very careful with color, um, you know, doing a, a color balance with it between cameras. The chances of you getting it just right are very low. So the angle of incidence against it and everything else becomes really difficult. So, um, you know, doing basically a auto white balance on a white card will get one camera looking okay. But as you do it with multiple cameras, the chances of them all seeing it the same way are very low. It might be better than, if you don't have any time, it might be better than anything else that you have there. But just know that that's a, that is a, it's, you're still gonna see some changes back and forth. It really takes time and effort and a real card to get really close. Now, if you're just trying to put something in front of the camera so you can correct it later, I agree with Jesse. Um, this is the X-Rite uh, color checker passport that Jesse showed there with a bunch of colors here. I keep this in my backpack um, and I use it, uh, you know, anytime I'm shooting, I just throw the, I just throw this out like this and just uh, open it all the way. <laughs> I don't throw it out halfway, but open it all the way and shoot it just for, you know, at the beginning of the frame if, if it matters, um, because it's going to make it a lot easier for you to find your color again uh, later. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, Roland released the Gaia 2 synth today, which combines an analog modeling engine with a wavetable engine and support for their model expansions that model classic Roland synth for US 899. Uh, the, uh, I, you know, I, I haven't been since they released it today. I don't think anybody here has it. So uh, maybe we can get Nick Bat to come back in and talk about it a little bit. So that that would be it. But I think we usually need a little bit more time to take a look at that. I think Roland is continuing. I think there's kind of a, in the under $1,000, Roland has a lot of competition from Behringer. So it's just a matter of whether they can fend off that that area. Next question. Sam Greenwood from Toronto, Canada. Did anyone watch the Republican debate last night? If so, what did you think of the production, graphics, etc.? You didn't watch it, John? No. You know, I I, uh, I had a bunch of meetings <laughs> last night that went through that that area. Um, I saw a couple of little clips go by on Twitter, and I thought that they did a pretty good job as far as you know lighting and basic production. Um, so I, I don't have a strong opinion about it. I was I was in too many meetings and too many other things to actually um, see it. I, I find that the um, the debates on both sides I find to be a bit you know kind of watching them in real time is um, a little ugly. And it's really hard. I'd rather just see the the snippets later because I just it it feels so. Um, I I feel like they've really both both sides. It just seems so. Um, I guess I guess I would say immature. 
um, that that uh, that I'm, and I'm not. This isn't picking one side or the other. They're both they're both difficult to watch, um, and it just feels it it undermines my uh, my opinion of our government <laughs> like when I watch the debates, when I watch any of them from either side, and so I think that that's the problem is is that the the level of statesmanship has dropped so low that it's really hard to um, for me to to absorb. Um, that in real time and and feel okay about where things are going. So I find that it's better, at least for me, to to maintain my sanity just to watch the clips later. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I'd rather spend my day watching reruns of WWF, uh, race, uh, you know, wrestling. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that that's, that's where the that's the real challenge is is figuring out a way to you know get to something. I can I, I, you know I'm old enough to remember debates that didn't feel like that <laughs> so so anyway so i think that uh i think that that's the real problem with the product but as far as production value goes uh i think that i, I do think that the um in the near past uh, i feel like the republicans have done a better job from, from a pr- pure production perspective of producing a, a more technically clean image um i think that some of the stuff that was done in the in uh the last campaign the production value for the Democratic uh, debates were really was really low, <laughs> like really, really, um, at, you know, egregiously low. So, um, so I think that they the Republicans have I, what I have noticed is they they've gotten better at doing that. So, uh, maybe just an evolution, but it's it's all done by different production groups, and and so you just have to you know, and it depends on the channel and and so on and so forth, and who's spending money on it. So, anyway, that's all I have to say about that. I, I, again, I don't have a strong opinion about anything that was said there, just but from a production value and an overall management, it'd be really great if we could figure out a way to manage those events in a way that felt more uh, like we were adulting. A uh, quick reminder that um, uh, that you can ask questions throughout the throughout the first hour. So if you've got questions, of course, you can use also use the QR code or that we might put up. I, I threw it off because I'm going in the wrong time. Um, but um, but the there's a QR code there. So um, that's the QR code, and you can click on that, or you can or you can point your camera at it, or you can just go to askofficehours.com, throw your questions in there, um, and uh, you won't have to log in or anything else. You can just pop them in there, and then we'll move them into our system. If you're already in Mukana, uh, go ahead and. Uh, vote on those questions as well and let us know what order you'd like us to ask them in. Let's go to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael asking, L Acoustics recently won a U.S. $5 million judgment against a company that was caught using counterfeit speakers. Have you ever had issues with counterfeit hardware on a show? Good, John. This this isn't, this is tangential to this, Douglas, but you reminded me of an of a interesting story that happened to us. In the late 90s, we developed Java-based streaming um, and we hired a third-party uh, Java, independent Java programmer, and we had Java streaming in the late 90s, so you didn't need to download any application, right? And we had a kind of a lead there with uh, competing against media player and real player uh, because Java was built into the browser. And so I'm walking around streaming media west. I don't know what year it was, 99, 98, something like that. And I come across this booth called Radical Mail, and they're showing exactly what our product does. I booted up the browser and I saw our our copyright information come up. We sued the guys. Our attorney brings in two giant poster boards of the actual source code. And the programmer didn't remove the comments, the comments that our programmer put in, like, I was born in California. My dog's name was Spot. And we won the judgment against the company. It was great. 
sorry, I got lost in my, my window. Sometimes I, I, I know that it sounds crazy, but I have a lot of windows here and I'm trying to get ready for the next question and I moved it over. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I had a uh, issue with a Shure SM58 um, that uh, was in our stack of microphones. And of course, you buy your microphones willy-nilly or you sometimes inherit them and it just didn't feel right and then it broke. So I sent it into Sure, and of course they were quick to respond. Well, we'd love to fix it, but it's not our microphone. So apparently uh, it was at a time where there was a lot of uh, counterfeit uh, Sure microphones coming into the U.S. from parts unknown, and um, they didn't really bother me too much about it, just to say that we can't honor this warranty. So you just have to be careful. Let the buyer beware. Next question. Mark Hessling from Englewood, Colorado, with another QR question. It's Thursday, and Amazon has the NFL tonight. I see the Amazon signal dropping frames when watching on the Prime platform. I do not experience this on other streaming platforms like Peacock, Paramount Plus. Any thoughts? Yeah, the the um, my understanding is that the Amazon stream is considerably higher quality than Peacock or or, um, or Paramount, so it's going to be more sensitive to a variety of things on your computer because it it will send you, I believe, up to 4K. It may not be 4K yet, but it's uh, I think they've talked about it in the past, um, and so it's they're trying to deliver the highest quality um, shot to you. Here's where it becomes sensitive. Um, if you're a little slower processor, it may not it may not be able to handle it as well. Also, if you are, um, uh, if you're windowing, so if your if your Chrome window goes a little into another screen, or if your Chrome room, if you don't go to full screen, so you should have to go. You, if you go to full screen, uh, you should find that it's pretty smooth. But what you will see is if you if you don't, the overhead of Chrome on top of it um, tends to make it le- um, a fa- much less uh, stable. Uh, and this is the same case for YouTube TV. Um, a lot of other things become much less performant when the window is actually seen, and if, especially if it has to scale anything in the computer. So you should try it with a um, go to full screen and see if it still occurs. Um, my problem is I've got a bunch of monitors here, so um, so if I want to do that, then I have to dedicate a monitor to it. So I end up uh, having another little computer over here with one of my screens, and I just go full screen over there, and then I can watch the game while I'm doing other things. So yeah, go ahead, Jonas. One thing also to notice, it's not uh, only higher quality, but they might also use their lower latency streaming protocol, which is way more susceptible than to you having network hiccups. A lot of people watch maybe Dropbox started to sync, which caused some of the packets to be too late to be still considered uh, arriving to the player. And that could also cause drop frames and those type of issues. Yeah, we still see it with YouTube, and YouTube has, a, I think, a 20-second delay. They're not working at it <laughs> for, the, for the NFL ticket. Uh, they're, I think they're on a 20-second delay there. Um, the, the delay is actually, I think, pretty high on Amazon. I mean, it's not as high as YouTube, but I think it's still a solid 10 or 15 seconds of, of, of buffering there. Um, the, the, there's a strong demand to push the latency down because people are betting on the game, and they're betting on every play, and they're betting on all this other stuff. And I think it's a mistake to try to get super low latency. I'd much rather watch the, I, I oftentimes am watching the game um, sometimes minutes or even tens of minutes behind. I, I tend to start the games um, late so that I can um, go through the commercials. <laughs> so when it goes to the commercials, I skip, 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 skip. And so it, it feels more, uh, feels better for me. So I oftentimes start the games 20 or 30 minutes behind because I'm not watching with anybody else. Uh, next question. 
Dave Burke in Alexandria, Virginia. Do you ever revise your videos based on usage data, such as a high abandon point? Should video projects include a standard round of revisions that happens after a go-live to account for these learnings? Uh, Jesse? We don't revise previous videos uh, based on abandoned points, but we do revise how we approach future videos based on that data. Once something is done, we let it be done. If we had a client who expected this from us, we would either bake it into the price of the, you know, the general consulting fee, or we would have that as an add-on that they can opt into later if they need to revise their videos after it's been released. Go ahead, Mitchell. I just wanted to say, uh, for the benefit of the folks that don't understand what we're talking about, it's the metadata, for example, that you get from YouTube where you can see a timeline and you can see where people are dropping out and what exact point. So you have a reference there. Jonas? And while this might be not typical in the more content production that a lot of us work in, if you work in the ad space, uh, you just keep revising your videos and like every little ditch you see, oh, this would increase the click-through rate, this one increases the retention. Um, and then if you look at all the big YouTubers, this is basically what they're doing um, within the bounds that they can do because like YouTube doesn't allow you to re-upload a video right now. But what you see, what is really interesting to watch is just what, take a video and keep watching the thumbnail of that video over the first couple hours, over the first couple days. Uh, great example, for example, is Mr. Beast is currently closing the mouth on all of their uh, thumbnails because they realized that the big screaming mouth actually has a lower click-through rate now than if you are just smiling. So now they're going through every single thumbnail I've ever created and used the version of him where he is just smiling instead of having an open mouth. And I think if you have... It also depends where your business is. Like if you have a business that depends on back catalog views, then yes, it makes total sense to always go back and reshuffle those. And if you then are on a platform where you could re-change those back catalog videos, it would be crazy not to do it. Jesse? Also, there's a tendency to frame these conversations in viewer drop-off, like to frame them negatively. And one thing that we've found really valuable, not just for our own analytics, but for uh, interfacing with clients, is to frame it in the positive. Like, let's look at these videos that did really well, study why they did well, and focus on uh, how we can replicate that success instead of uh, avoiding failures. We don't ignore the avoiding failures completely, but there are two sides to this coin. The um, The... And you read these differently, exactly what, what, what's being discussed here is that if you look at the graph, if you think about a graph here like this, one of the things that, um, that we look at when we think about these graphs is we look, we, we'll look at things and, and when we have control over the back end, over the CDN, we definitely have made lots of adjustments to the videos. They're not something that you would typically notice, but we'll learn things. So for instance, if you see something, let's just draw a graph that looks like it goes down like this and then it kind of goes up like this and then it and then it um and then it goes up you know then it might have a spike up like this and then it goes up and like this and then it just drops off you know or drop more importantly drops like this right so if we think about that what's happening is is that everyone got to the everyone came in and there were a lot of people sorry make that a little thicker there when people came in here there were a lot of people that this video as soon as they watched it they were like this isn't something i'm interested in so that means that there's a disconnect from your thumbnail to your um to the actual video so what they thought what they were going to get from the thumbnail doesn't turn out to be what they want and they're like no that's why this first part is so important um is that is that that's there now you can decide that that's okay 
um, and then you kind of adjust. Now, a slow up, uptick, this is, you have to remember that this is the, uh, the slow uptick here means that people are watching and they're interested. A jump like this or a jump like this, that's oftentimes someone tweeted it out. So if you're doing a live stream, someone tweeted it at that time, and then you start searching for those times. Um, if someone is, um, uh, if if it's there, someone may also be linking to a certain time on YouTube so that you'll know that, oh, some people are interested. They think that that was important. So if you see any of those kinds of things. One thing that we used to see with training is we would see a graph that looked like it would be like this, and then it would go like this, and then it would go off like this. And and what we would what we'd be looking at here is this spike was almost always related to people rewinding because they didn't understand in a training environment, people rewinding because they didn't understand what you said, or they didn't understand how that step works, or they didn't understand something there. And so we often found that if we went back and fixed that step, this would drop down, you know, to, to something much lower because now they understand it. So fixing those steps going backwards was useful for us. This drop off is often because people like me will do things in, in, um, level, in la layers. So the very first part is exactly what you need. And then the rest of this is more detailed information for the people that are really into it. I didn't, I found, I reversed it because the problem that a lot of, a lot of YouTubers will reverse this. They'll give you all the stuff you don't care about so that you hang on and watch the thing at the end. And I don't find that to be user friendly. Um, and so, you know, so I, I care more about when I'm building videos for clients, more about being user friendly, <laughs> you know, that, that you want them to always, oh, that person put out something that's going to be great. And so that means almost no introduction. Um, just just kind of go into it. Don't ask for people to subscribe. Don't do a bunch of preamble. Just get into what they, what, why they clicked on it as within, you know, 10 seconds or 15 seconds and, and, then, um, and then move through it. But if you're going to add more detail, if they saw the first thing and they want to know more, then keep on giving them more information there. Um, but most of the videos, but that's how we, how we look at it. But in YouTube, because you can't do it, uh, they don't do it. One thing on TikTok that's interesting is they'll throw the videos away constantly. So TikTokers will throw something up there and if it doesn't, it doesn't, um, get traction in two or three days, a big TikToker, if they don't see traction in a couple of days, oftentimes they'll re-record it or throw it away and do it again. And it'll look almost the same, but they've made a bunch of adjustments to it. So that's another way to think about it. Next question. Another incoming QR code question from Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas. That squirrel wheel trick that Courtney did early in show 1282. How do I do that with my Apple Magic Mouse or Apple Trackpad? Uh, there's not really any way to do it with your magic mouse or your trackpad. <laughs> so, you know, you need, there's a, there's a bunch of different controllers for, um, a variety of these things. And so, um, there's foot controllers, there are, um, you know, jog wheels that you can use to, to get used to it. There's automated ways to do it, but you know, a surface based, um, approach to it won't, won't typically work. So that's the, that's the, um, you know, that's the challenge you're always going to, you're going to be in there is that, that it's good for a lot of things, but it's not, um, necessarily uh, good for, for that. Uh, next question. Sam Greenwood in Toronto, Canada. Would it be safe to attach the Heil mic arm to an upright mic stand? The Heil mic arm. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I just think that the mic stand has to have enough counterbalance to keep the thing, whole thing from falling over. That's the issue. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I would do that. Um, yeah, because it, it the, the you know I think that if you're on an upright mic stand, you're just not going to have enough weight. You're, you're going to you, the the leverage is going to be too high. You really need to attach that mic arm to something that it's going to be able to. And you either drill it into the into the table or you attach it to the table. But I think you're going to have a hard time 
um, making that work any other way. So, so I, I definitely would probably, yeah, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> um, uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael, has anyone ever experimented with the pers- personal voice feature in Mac OS Sonoma and iOS 17? Um, the, anyone experimented with the voice? Have you guys used that at all? The personal voice? I, I I signed up for eleven labs, so I'm I'm getting ready. But then I then I saw it was like two I was like, you know, Apple needs to give us something that's more than fifteen minutes long. And and so I was like, this is and so I was I'm gonna go to a real one and then it asked for three hours of content and I was like, Oh <laughs> like I don't I I need to figure out where I'm gonna obviously I can find it here. But uh did now John, you've used that, right? You've used the um eleven labs. We did we did Courtney's video, which was only about fifteen minutes. It came out fantastic, right? Yeah. So we've done uh, we've done a lot of Eleven Labs work. We have sixty or so titles of books that we've recorded on Eleven Labs. You know, I I think that the interesting thing is I I feel like you know to train these systems like for when you listen to Apple's Siri or um, other things like that to train those, they often spend, have the person saying very specific things, you know, to, you know, to do it. And they haven't, you know, I, I was kind of surprised with 11 labs. They just asked for three hours of content. They didn't, I think that that what, you know, maybe they don't need it anymore. Maybe their, maybe their AI is so smart that it doesn't need uh, you to do that. But it feels like it would work better if they gave us, you know, if you asked people to do the work, to build a really high quality one is, you know, read this excited, read this, you know, sad, read this, you know, read this and maybe because I used to do voice acting, that would be easy for me. And some people might sound the same all the time. <laughs> you know, so, so it's, so it might not make any difference, but, um, but I think that that's the, uh, I, I haven't played with it with the, you know, with Sonoma and iOS 17 yet. Um, but I do think that there's a real interesting possibility here. And there's a lot of people that won't want to do it because they don't want to, necessarily have their voice replaced but i do think that this market is going to get really interesting you know when it when as we move down the path where what's exciting for me is i know that people some people are upset about the the possibility of um there's a possibility of you know obviously a lot of voice talent being replaced but there's also an enormous amount of content that is not ever really distributed in a way people can listen to it And so all these magazines and many old books and many old other things like that could all be read by something that does a pretty good job. Is it going to do a, you know, if you're doing a mainline fictional thing where you need actors or you, you have the money, you know, that this nonfiction is going to go as go really wide. I think that it makes sense to have a, to have um, talent read it. But I think that we're leaving out massive amounts of content that we could be listening to. Like I listened to a thing called news. I've talked about before news over audio Noah and I listen to it all the time you know and it's it's the and they've spent the money to have people read it um but I I think that there is a um there's a big market there for the older books that you know I I have this book I've talked about in the past Africa biography of a nation or biography of a continent um and it's 800 pages and no one's ever read it out and so it's still stuck in the text jail (laughs) the text dungeon um and uh and i think that those are the kind of things that that ai could uh, you know really open up and when you think about the possibilities think about every book every meeting every like so just even just the city meetings right now could be you know they could be recorded then ai could transcribe it and then ai could put it into 60 uh, languages 
And all of that would happen 15 minutes after or even potentially in real time. <laughs> like that it's all just getting pushed out and, and people are able to listen to it. And I think that the level of transparency even for government or, you know, organizations, um, you know, for everyone to, you know, that kind of stuff we're not doing right now because it doesn't make financial sense to do it. Um, but when that goes away, our ability to learn, our ability to look at things is going to be pretty profound. So I think that, I think that a lot of times, you know, we're looking at how it affects our industry, but we also have to look at how it affects, you know, how people learn and how people, um, you know, absorb the, the world around them. And, and I think that we're going to get to an incredible speed at which you do have to pay attention. Like the, as a human, you're going to have to be working at learning every day, getting better at what you do every day, because you're not going to be able to coast at all you know, in, as we move forward. Um, but at the same time, the tools to allow you to be successful there can un, are, have never been better. Go ahead, Mitchell. It's a, a, it's a tough question in some respects uh, on the subject of 11 Labs. Um, I'm a voiceover person. I don't like the idea of an AI uh, sampling anything and uh, doing as good or better job than me doing it. But at the same time, I'm kind of foolish to avoid it because who knows that maybe I'll catch some kind of a weird cold and my voice is never the same and there's no way I'd ever get it back. So uh, perhaps I should be uh, doing it. And then the other thing to take into consideration is once your voice has been sampled, as AI improves, could it get better um, at doing your voice? So I think it's something I have to pay attention to. And then on the subject of using um, uh, your personal voice feature in Mac OS, um, Paul uh, uh, Wallace uh, sample his voice it took him about 20 minutes and it did a perfect perfect rendition of john edelson <laughs> go ahead john mr beast was on a show on a podcast this week and uh in and on his statistics on, only 10 percent of his listeners speak english so he's using third-party tools to to convert spotify just is getting close to releasing their converter that will convert it into multiple languages which was based on open eyes technology so recording your podcast or whatever your program is and then immediately converting it into a bunch of languages can be huge yeah yeah and again it, being able to get out to all all of those and and i think that we are getting very close i mean when you think about some of the possibilities there you um Imagine being able to, when it's in real time, and you know we're getting very close to the Star Trek thing that we all talked about, that we're all in Zoom, and you, we're talking back and forth. I hear John in his own voice. If I'm, let's say I'm not an English speaker, but I hear it in you know, another language with John's voice in real time while John's talking, you know, with, you know, maybe, or maybe it's a subtle delay. I mean, so, so then we're not really thinking about what language other people are even speaking. Um, because it's all getting tied together and we're all able to talk to each other. And and that is very close. Like the technology is so close to being able to do to do that over Zoom or other other tools where it's just completely and you might have a little, you know, again, you might end up with an earpiece in your ear and you're just walking around and when people talk to you, you hear them, you know, potentially even in their own voice in real time, even if it's never heard you before. Like it's gonna start building these models in a way that it can just um, you know, start to get the idea of what it looks like. At first, it won't be, it'll just be some random voice. But um, I think, it's, and I also think that our text messaging is going to, I still think we're going to end up text messaging with that voice, you know, where Apple's going to, because they can keep it secure, they're not sending you the voice, they're sending you a text message in that voice, as if they left you a voicemail. So if I send John a text, it's going to, John will hear it in my voice, 
while I'm talking about it, which is um, may seem like an odd thing, but if you have someone who can listen to it who's driving, for instance, and you want to text something that you don't want to talk, you know, like you're at a at a meeting or at some event or whatever, you want to text it, John can be hearing me while he's driving, talking to him in my voice while I'm just texting it from somewhere else. So that's that's the use case that might be the you know might be interesting. So anyway, it's it, it's. It's going to be fascinating. I'm, I'm you haven't, experiment with you it. haven't lived until you've heard uh, the Gettysburg Address done in the original Klingon. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I did. I did have uh, ChatGPT do a Gettysburg Address as a pirate, and uh, it was uh, it was great. It was really funny. Um, arg. Anyway, arg. <laughs> so anyway, um, next question. Bill Mew in Turnbridge, Wells, UK. As we see the new Sure SM seven DB, what do you team? What do your team think is the best lower cost rival for live streamers? Uh, Mitchell. Well, the first of all, the SM seven DB, as the name implies, uh, has a preamp built into it. So I guess you could do pretty much the same thing to any Sure microphone by slapping on an MV. Two, I think it's called, which is a preamp. Um, I, you know, not everybody has a problem with uh, getting that extra volume. And I generally would say avoid adding additional preamps to the output of a microphone because it's just going to bring the noise floor up. And thus, you know, the problems aren't going to go away. You might have the right level, but now you hear more noise and other things like that. So my, my opinion is, uh, under certain circumstances, having that preamp built into the mic might be useful, but I'd much rather have it uh, removable so that if I don't need it, I can eliminate it. Go, Jesse. Uh, if you're talking strictly cost competition, the SM7B comes in $100, cheaper than the 7DB, also not for nothing. There are other microphones, podcasters. You can try different microphones. Anything over 100 bucks is probably going to sound okay, if not fantastic. Uh, okay, I think. I, there, you know, I think that the, 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 the number starts to get... Um, the, it starts to become one of those things that... At, at uh, about $150, things start to get pretty good, but it, a lot of it has to do with how you're going to use it and what the mic is what the mic is set up for and how it works. So it starts to become um, a little bit more complicated in that in that area. The um, you know I just I just started testing what Mitchell was talking about, and this is the um, uh, the MV X2U, which is this little guy here. So this is the end of an XLR cable, um, and this is the um, uh, the Shure, uh, and it's very small. It's much smaller than the last ones uh, that were there. It still has a headphone jack, so you can hear yourself and potentially the computer there. It's got USB-C. So the one problem with the MV7 is that it doesn't... MV7 has a micro, and it's really delicate. And um, we're really worried about it. It gets loose and doesn't really work as well. So um, that's problematic. Uh, I'm thinking of moving to the MV, MV7X or something like that that doesn't have the USB-C, but then also has the, um, um, but I'm going to put this on the back of it. <laughs> so, so I'm thinking of adding this to it. It's about the, it'll end up being the same price, I think, as the MV7, but it'll give me um, a little bit more latitude. Uh, coming up tomorrow, um, we're going to have, uh, tomorrow we're going to be having the, the folks talk from VizRT coming, 
and they're going to be talking about um, production in the cloud. Uh, of course, VizRT bought um, uh, uh, NewTek, and uh, and they've been they are one of the leaders for a very very long time uh, in uh, broadcast graphics. But they've really expanded out and uh, and are covering a lot of other things now, and especially the cloud their um, their their cloud resources. And so they're going to be here to answer your questions about that. It should be a really great great hour. In just a minute, we'll be talking more about the Black Magic cameras. Uh, a reminder that Saturday is a bit of a test day for us, uh, so we're testing HDR 5.1 uh, 4K, mostly HDR at the moment. Of trying to figure out a couple bits and pieces to it. Um, so you're going to see a lot of things fluttering around as we do that. It's still two hours of Q&A, um, but we are uh, we are going to be, you'll see us doing lots of little bits and pieces and testing those things out on Saturday. Sunday, of course, is introspection. Um, and, that, and that's a great time for you to bring up concerns, questions, complaints, all those things about office hours, as well as philosophical. And you can still throw tech questions in. But usually we're, we run a little bit slower and a little bit more uh, philosophical um, than normal. Let's jump into the second hour. And we're back uh, for the second hour. And we're going to be talking about uh, the uh, the Blackmagic cameras. Of course, uh, last week we had Blackmagic releasing these cameras um, and and new protocols. So they're, it's not just the cameras. It's the web presenter. It's the bridge. It's a lot of other things. And one of the things that really opened up the, the um, it really started opening up how we thought about this. And I guess it was two weeks ago. Was it two weeks ago or one week ago? No, I can't remember. Two weeks ago that Apple, uh, that, that, um, that Blackmagic released these. And um, one of the things that's really interesting here is that we think that w what we're thinking about right now is how you can build a dual pipeline where we're able to still talk the way we're talking here, but also have another um, feed, another high quality feed um, that allows us to, um, to have a lot more control over the cameras as well as potentially, you know, a 4K, um, you know, 10-bit uh, solution that you know, all the way through the entire pipeline. Um, there's a lot of new updates. And I think the best thing to do is to hand this off to Jonas to talk a little bit about it. He has one of the new cameras and he's already started to bang on it a little bit. Jonas, can you tell us, give us a little update of, of, <clears throat> of what, what we saw updated and also where you've, where you've taken it so far? Yeah, so um, small correction. I don't have a new camera just yet. I just have the new software on one of the old cameras. So oh, got it. Okay. there's a new software, uh, 8.2. 9.2, um, one of the <clears throat> one of those, and that is available for all the studio cameras right now, and also for the new 6K cinema camera. What is really coolest, you can now take uh, any USB-C to Ethernet adapter and plug it into your camera. So that's what I did to the studio camera that's right behind me. And now, if I open up the camera setup, you see I'm already connected to it over Ethernet. It's already pretty cool. Um, you can control it over Ethernet now. It has DHCP, which um, lots of people. Are you are you screen sharing or are you showing? Oh, oh. Let me let me actually show you. Yeah. Uh, there we go. So yeah, you can connect to it directly over Ethernet. You have all the DHCP, and then this um, will look really similar to those that have one of the new Hyperdecks. Right. Um, you have FTP, so now you can FTP into your camera to get all the files of all the disks that are attached to it. Wow. You have SMB if that's more your type. And then this is really cool. If I click this and now drag this over, there's a web interface as well that allows you right now have a portable SSD and then 
I can uh, download the images here. Um, can you load LUTs here as well? That I'm, I'm not sure. Huh. I, I was no. just, so, loading LUTs remotely has turned out to be a, a kind of an obsession of mine because it does none, nothing seems to let you do it, and I'm always curious why that. So I, I don't expect it. I'm just curious. So. And the other really cool thing for people like me is we now have a REST API. Before, um, there's this SDA-based API, and you can also control it through your 18-mini Extreme. And what you might notice, um, you see you see down below me, you see the camera image, um, but the camera behind me is not running green because I'm uh, breaking the HDMI signal chain by going through a decimator. So the ATEM can't control it right now. Mm -hmm. um, one of the big improvements of this protocol over the SDI-based one is you have bidirectionality. If I connect to the WebSocket server that's also running on the camera, um, now see that uh, I can send this message, and now I'm subscribed to any changes to the focus on the lens. So yeah, so so it's not just you telling the camera what you want it to do; it it, it can tell you where what it's doing. Yeah, and the great thing is, um, if we go here and we'll send this command real quick, we get a list of everything that you can listen to. I can listen to the level of the in audio input changing, and then react to that. I can listen to the phantom power changing um, if that input is uh, becoming available. So as soon as you plug it in, we could trigger something in the program. If the ATEM changes anything with the color correction, um, this camera has the normal color corrector in with like, um, uh, I think it's a first level resolve color corrector. If any of that gets changed, we can uh, look at that here. We can say when it starts to play so one of the really interesting things is it has the same uh, transport API than the Hyperdeck does. So play, record, next clip, and all of those is built in. So now if you need to play something back from the camera, um, it looks the same as a Hyperdeck on the HTTP API. You can say, hey, if somebody enables auto exposure on my camera, I want the whole studio to flash red and uh, have a voice say, why did you do that? <laughs> Possible. And, and like that's really cool because like before there always was this bit of an issue where like you're currently shading it and the camera operator walks on to the camera and is like, oh, actually, let me just do this real quickly. And then you're in either an unknown state or you need to override everything they've done. So as an example, if we go, you can also this, um, I'll have a look later if we, if I can find if uh, there's uh, lots in the presets. But like you can download the preset file, upload the preset file, can uh, get all the supported codecs. You can create a timeline. Um, let's see where is lens. This they've uh, so many things. Video should be an API just for lens presets. Lens. Here we go. So now on the lens, let's say I wanna zoom in i can first of all get the zoom now i get it's currently at a focal length 15. i could say um if i want to set the zoom i can say hey actually that should be 30. if i now send this we see that the camera zoomed in and i can say okay it's time to zoom out again and that, and the camera zooms out. Um, I'm using just an MFT lens that is uh, 
motorized, so that's why I can do that. You can do the same with the focus. So if I now go here and I get my focus, see this is the normalized focus right now. Um, now we can go here and we say, actually, let's set that to 0 0.7. And now it doesn't like that because it needs to be valid JSON. And there we go. Now it changed the focus. And now if we go back to the API here, we see that we got a data packet that says, hey, the property value changed, length focus, here's the new values. And this like, this might not look like much, but this is a really big improvement because now you can read this out and like match a camera in Unreal Engine with it. You can read this out and like, Make sure that when you zoom, you also like somehow calculate the focus yourself and do some algorithm based there, or you change the super source box on the ATEM depending on your zoom. Like you can build really cool integrations with that now. And I'm I'm just really glad that they added a WebSocket API that is like bi-directional because a lot of vendors kind of skip that scab step. Yeah. Well, and the interesting um, thing is, you know, when when we think about like virtual backgrounds. So we have had, um, uh, you know, we've done a lot of virtual backgrounds in the past. So let's say you have three people talking to each other. I don't need it to really pan with a yeah. virtual background. I, but when I zoom into a person, I need, I need it to change, zoom in or change focus. I need the, the background to match the person. So I need to set that background up and then be able to constantly change what that background is doing based on what my focus is. And that's been the real trick. We're, we're like, yeah, you can have a bunch of ultimates and you can key all those things, but you still need to figure out where that background is. And so if I now have this set up, I could theoretically be changing that camera. Um, so I'm changing the zoom of that camera and I'm able to actually... Uh, the you know I'm not again not zooming in while cut to it, but I'm going to reframe that that person that I'm going to cut back to, and that background is going to change. It could be theoretically changing uh, what the blur radius is. It could be changing the obviously what you're framing. Uh, so if you're thinking about a a virtual. Uh, and, and and again, we have some of this tel telemetry in much more expensive cameras. So there are, you know, if you go to a, a Panasonic 150, it's going to drop all that telemetry out, um, you know, and, and make that available. There's other cameras that do it. But this camera is a relatively inexpensive one that you could put in. And now you really, the idea of a three camera green screen round table or whatever becomes much more real with um, something like this than it has been in the past um, for a cost-effective solution. And so that I think is going to be really interesting. The other thing, of course, is that Jonas is on a, on, on a land, but with a VPN, that could be anywhere, right? I mean, you could be controlling that. Yeah, You'd exactly. have all the data from that camera and be able to send commands to a camera anywhere in the world. And for us, for someone who builds remote systems, <laughs> that's super valuable. What we've done in the past to do this is we have a Mac Mini you know, M1 with uh, Blackmagic Bluetooth software. And we literally have to do a screen share to grab onto the camera and make the adjustments and everything else. Now what you're going to see, I think, in the not too distant future is you're going to open up a, a controller that is getting, and we can talk about video protocols, but coming out of the camera in some protocol or going through a bridge or going through a web presenter. I'm seeing the data on my end. I'm seeing what the picture looks like on my end, potentially at 4K. Um, and and I'm and then what I'm doing is I'm just I have a nice little interface and I'm dialing focus and I'm doing all the things that I want to do. 
I'm not going through another app. I'm not going through Bluetooth or I'm not doing something else. I'm, you know, or using a, a, a remote ATEM. I'm just sitting there dialing it in on software and potentially even tying it to hardware so I can sit there and have a basically a, um, a shading control over a camera that is just sitting on top, you know, over top of a monitor in a teleprompter for someone that's off in the distance. Um, the, and now some of these cameras are capable of RTMP. Is that is that right as far as streaming directly from the cameras? Right now, I think that's only the OSA and one of the, I think the 4K Pro G2. Mm-hmm. Their, their naming is a little complicated to uh, keep in your head. One great note on uh, a little feature that I discovered that they did is they don't, it doesn't work as a webcam if you plug it in directly over USB. Mm-hmm. But it did something really cool where it shows up as an Ethernet adapter and it configures itself. So without needing to access it over Ethernet, you can use the same protocol and everything, just name-based instead of IP, uh, with the name instead of like a specific IP address from your computer. So now you can literally send a Mac Mini with a camera like this or the little um, new G2 Studio, mic- Micro Studio, yep. just send that plus maybe an encoder or a way to also get the video signal and you have a great kit. You don't even need a VPN. It's like, that's one of the great things with it that I was a little blown away. It's like, you just plug it in, it presents itself as a network adapter and it just works. And how would you get, how would you, without a VPN, how would you get to that if it was remote? I mean, you could either dial into the PC or I, I would use one of our little tools that like, brings it into web sockets and then uh, spits out a nicer looking web interface. Or since it's just an HTTP endpoint, you could even just use a Cloudflare tunnel on that PC, have it point to that and backhaul it, just like we do with all the web interfaces for Office hours right now. So like I could say, hey, here, John, this is your your PC, your webcam, and I can just go to John at uh, john.officehours global cloud and then I'm in his camera, I can download the source files if we like need to recut something. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the whole file workflow of a studio right now where we need to send it to a hyperdeck and then get everything from a hyperdeck and just being able to get the B-roll files from the camera directly is really great. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that the um, the other thing that's really interesting there is the potential of, like we have these web interfaces that we use for office hours, being able to have another position that isn't just, that is literally shading. <laughs> so if if all the panelists had these cameras, we could theoretically have someone sitting there just shading all the cameras. Right now we have FSHDRs that we're running everybody through, but the problem with that is that it comes in over Zoom. So it's kind of a uh, compressed version of that. We can only do so much control. What if someone could just be dialing and select Jonas or select Guy and just dial up their their um, their exposure or dial in things that they needed to do um, to fix something that they wanted to do? And, and again, this is not just for office hours. If you think about the kind of cooking stuff that we did in the past, that if you think about all these other things, there's this ability to send out kits that could potentially be multi-camera and being able to have full control over those and not have it be some wonky you know, like right now, everything up until now, and that's why I wanted to do a whole hour on this, is that for people to really understand how groundbreaking this is, that we're not looking at some kind of closed protocol. This is an API. There's all kinds of possibilities that are going to come out of this, of us being able to send out remote kits, potentially multi-camera remote kits, um, being able to tie those all into software and being able to adjust them. So like one of the hard things that we deal with with remote kits is that getting all the color balance so that everybody looks the same. 
you know, now we could sit there on a, we could have a multi-view that has all of our, you know, all of the stuff up there and we're sitting there just dialing in, you know, um, all the cameras so that it feels like a cohesive show. And I think that there's, there's possibilities I think that have been thrown around. Like, so if, if everybody, if we sent you out with some kind of little, you know, patch like this, you could theoretically, you know, have it where you put it up, you know, everyone just set this on a tripod and the cameras could match each other, you know, like, like, you know, in the space, it could sit there and just match all the cameras, you know, and that software now is something that is doable because we could grab those frames and have control of the camera to do that. It's, it's pretty exciting. You know, like it's a really and, exciting position. Yeah, go ahead, Jonas. And it's really exciting to see this move from Blackmagic from their more older technology-based SDK for the ATEMs over to this really, like, it's surprising how good it is. Like, I've ke- talked to a lot of developers over the last week, and it's like, it is surprisingly good. They really thought about what we would need, what like the next version of a really great open protocol for developer looks like. And like, I think they really covered it well. You can go to your, if you have one of those webcams, you go to API to slash control slash documentation.html. They serve you all the API files. You download them, import them into Postman and you're ready to go and start testing, which like, they just did all the things, all the checkboxes, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's just for, really for really our cool. listeners. Uh, just just describe what Postman is. Uh, so Postman was the. I can show it real quick. Postman is uh, this little tool that allows me to um, look at the at an HTTP request. Normally in your code, you would like program everything around it. Postman allows me to do this really easily where I can say, hey, um, import these, but I can also say, hey, connect over a WebSocket to this specific URL, or if we look here at the color corrector, it's like, hey, send a get command to this URL, and the base URL is something that I specified. So I can use this with different cameras, and then you can say, hey, these headers should be sent, and this should be in the body, and then I can just click send, and I get a whole bunch of information. How long did it take? How big was that? I can save that as an example. So Blackmagic actually has like, hey, how should it look like when your camera responds to that? Right. Um, it's It's a really nice... UI-based tool that allows you to test APIs and mock things up. And this is where I always start with in development, like let's make it work here and then I can move it into the code or they even have a little thing here where you can say, hey, move that into Node.js for me. And now if I wanted to do that command just in Node.js, I have code that I can at least look at and be like, oh, that's how you would do that or see or whatever. It's it's a nice little tool. Um, yeah. Yeah, the um, the one of the things that we're really trying to think about is how do how do we take all these connections and build these the kind of thing we're doing with office hours, but you know you're seeing us start to stream in 4K HDR um, and uh, 5.1, but our source content is highly compressed. Um, you know, basically, you know, it's it's highly compressed um, H.264 or soon to be AV1 or whatever. But the the the, the issue is is that um, we're not we're not getting the full quality out of every panelist. And I think that we could be using theoretically, we could be using something like um, whether it's Zoom or Stream Voodoo or other things like that to deliver back to us. If you don't have these cameras, but if you have these cameras, we could be delivering these cameras into Zoom. So we're all talking like this. 
But on the other side of that, using something like the um, web presenter, uh, you know, you could now send SRT back to our switcher so that you could be sending a 4K. If you use a 4K web presenter, you could, you could have, you could be sending SRT back to our switcher. It's a little latent. That's a problem with SRT. Both RTMP and SRT are dramatically more latent than, um, than what you get with WebRTC. So we want to be talking in Zoom. We want to be talking at this very low latency. And the interesting thing is, is that we can turn that down. Like, I don't need to see Jonas at a full, we can turn that down to 640 by 360, let it break up a little bit and drop that latency down to, you know, 100 milliseconds or 75 milliseconds. And, you know, if it breaks up a little bit, I see, but I'm not worried about Jonas breaking up because I know that there's an SRT feed that's got a one second or two second latency that is going out to our switcher. And so the person cutting the show is getting these beautiful 4K potentially, you know, or, you know, H.265 um, HDR frames that are coming back to them that are then delivered into our into our system. And I believe we'd be able to, like, for instance, we could set all those cameras to log, you know, and then run the whole, the whole show that way and then pass them off and go through an FSHDR or other things like that or, or potentially just do it inside the, the switcher. And then you end up, so you're basically sending, you've got, if you think about it, you know, you've got these cameras and, you know, from, you know, you, you have cameras that are in these different areas and you have your, uh, you know, you have your switcher over here that's that's coming in. And the protocols are that in, uh, um, you know, in the show itself that we're talking about, you know, we see each other in these little squares. And that's kind of the, um, if you think about it, it's like, you know, this is all really, we're going in very light to that there. But on the other side of that, um, we have this big pipe that is sending all of this, you know, around here, you know, back to the back to it. So we're able to talk there and but be able to send these really high quality um, systems back. That is a game changer. <laughs> That's a game changer for the kind of, you know, events that we do, the meetings that we do, everything else is to be able to have these super high quality feeds if the bandwidth allows at the far end. But th that's getting better in a lot of places. And a lot can be corrected when you have a little bit more latency to work with. Yeah, go ahead, Jonas. And like, and now we're talking about something like really abstract, but like two years ago, we did something like this with John Barker with the a Belfast method type show where right. we had everybody also stream SRT. And as a TD, what was really interesting is I was like, oh, in two seconds, this person is going to pick up their cup. So right now I can cut away from Alex. Okay, he's done with drinking. Let's go back to the gallery show. Um, and then like within this year, we had some... Uh, initial development on doing an auto cutter, but that was informed by the real-time conversation, but then using the high quality delayed feeds to cut in it. And it was magical because now like it felt like when you do post-production, you would like do a J cut or an L cut, which you can't do live if you're not really good at anticipating who's going to respond. But this auto cutter was able to do it because it was like, oh, and guy's about to speak. And I'll cut to him and now he's speaking. And like then you can create something really magical that like you're watching, you're like, this isn't live. This is oh wait, now they're responding to my comments, which um I it's think would be really fun to work Because you on. can you could use the processing of the WebRTC if the system sees the WebRTC and the SRT, delaying the SRT by five seconds or ten seconds yeah. might be advantageous because it knows that guy's gonna talk for the next uh, um 
uh, for the next five seconds. So I know that it's valid. It's not a laugh. It's not a hit. Yeah. I can look at, you know, that whole attack speed isn't in real time. The attack speed is I get to see what happens in the future. And I know that this is going to be a good thing to jump over to. And so you, you're starting to split these these systems apart. And it could produce just, you know, you know, live shows like we haven't seen before. And again, none of this is possible without the total control over the, the these SRT backhauls and making them relatively simple. Like this is, yeah. this is not trying to figure out how to use a PC or do anything else. This is a little box and you plug your camera into it and you point it in the right direction. You know, and if we have the stuff on the other side, especially if the switchers start to be able to accept it directly, you know, all these feeds, um, you end up in a pretty interesting place. You know, so so it's uh, so that's why we wanted to make sure that we we really underlined um, that this is not that it's something that if you watch the the event, you wouldn't see very much going by. <laughs> like this was kind of this kind of sailed through, but it's a it's probably the most important update that that Blackmagic did at IBC. Go ahead, Mitchell. This has uh, interesting implications. Being able to cut ahead by knowing what's going to happen. Um, if you were to cut something out, let's say it's a uh, profanity delay, um, how do you make up the time that you just lost? Well, it would get you. You you patch something over it, so it just means that you could, you know, ID it um, and 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 do it in in real time. So it would never feel like there was something there. I mean, that's the. Uh, with um, the seven-second delay, we have had seven-second delay units. You hit a button and it just cuts to the real time away from it, and then you can't re you can't go back. Right? In this case, you're in the future. You you can have um, some time to to ID that. There's a lot of things that, um, uh, but you could fix a lot of things. It, it, there's a lot of things that you can do when you're sitting when you're actually looking at it in the future, and and deciding how big that buffer is is the next question. It, it does become. Uh, technically challenging to buffer a lot of video so you just have to be careful of you know you can't you can only buffer the video so much before you start you know, it's storage but storage has gotten cheaper and easier so it's a really um again we I, it, if you're if you lean technical this this meeting is going to be important because two years from now three years from now you're going to see a different kind of online shows than we've ever seen before. And it's gonna be because of technologies like this. Um, this is the first announcement. This is us showing that first little like, we're, we're the first ones waving the flag going, hey, <laughs> you know, like this is important. But but I think that in a couple of years, you're gonna, it's gonna really blow up what we can do online in a way that we get to a point where the, again, the the online version may be better than anything you can do in person because we have all of these tools and we have all the ability to control them. Let's go to the first question. First question coming in from Bill Mew in Turnbridge, Wells, UK. And uh, Bill wants to know, the Blackmagic camera app looks great. It can send files to the cloud, but if it could stream with, say, SRT, now that would be awesome. Jonas? It would be really cool. Um, Blackmagic must be thinking about this um, right now. Um the iPhone sometimes makes it really hard for you to do um, really use the hardware. So just right now, um, a lot of people might know the I IRL Pro or the Larix app to stream SRT from the iPhone. But one thing, uh, Global M is the app that I would use if I had to depend on it, because they can actually use the hardware encoder, which is a little tricky on the uh, iPhone sometimes. So I would love to see a free app from Blackmagic that does it. Because that would be a game changer. Um, you do also, if we look at how Blackmagic progresses right now, they are building this ecosystem. And also on the development side, you see 
they mentioning Black Magic OS. I think that started two years ago with the new Pocket Cinemas. You you start to see that like there's these rolling features that get implemented and they get put into the Black Magic OS, and suddenly everything has it. So I think we could see a good trajectory of Black Magic having this un- this ecosystem that is still open, which I love, but still has SRT and stuff like this. And if you think about the the RTMP or SRT um, solution, one of the things that's really interesting is the ability to have, like for instance, a growing file. You could be sitting there in a in Resolve, for instance, shooting something, and it could be taking an RTMP or taking uh, SRT and and just adding those segments back, not segments, but adding the the stream back into a growing file that you have sitting in Resolve and you're cutting a show in real time because these cameras or because you have a, um, a web presenter and you could be cutting all of this stuff as, it, as it's rolling in um, without having to you know, download it or even have the file closed. Um, so that's a really interesting possibility as well. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, with the Blackmagic app, you can you know, feed the, the HDMI out into a cheap SRT encoder. Um, oops, wrong. Let's go to this one. Uh, so here's the app, and what Jonas was talking about was uh, Larix. The problem, and this is the app on that, the iPhone, right? Yeah, this is the iPhone app. So, you know, say for exi- example, you wanted to adjust the exposure. That's one of the things that you can do here with, you know, with the Black Magic app. Whereas with Larix, it it has SRT. So if you go into the setting here, you can create a new connection and you can fire up an SRT feed. So you'd have the SRT colon slash slash the address and the port number. And it's very easy to stream, but you don't get all those fine controls like you do. I mean, you can focus, but you can send 4K. We've been using this uh, with great success and it has audio and it does have some talk back. So that there are some interesting things in here that Blackmagic should be paying attention to, such as talk back and being able to, um, you know, hear, hear uh, or even get a return feed. So now, does a Blackmagic cam stream in? Or does it does it have a streaming? It protocol? doesn't stream. No, it does not stream. But you know, you, you've got the clean HDMI out, so you could feed this into an SRT encoder if you wanted to use it right now, and you know, get rid of all this stuff that's on the screen. Right, and it could, but Blackmagic could also be sending a clean feed over RTMP or SRT and have complete control over the phone camera. Sure. Right. I mean, it's. Yeah, a, I mean, yeah. it, it'll probably come eventually where yeah. it'll it'll just add right here. You'll just you know have an SRT address just like what we saw in Larix. Yeah, yeah. The so, one I mean, you, thing. Yeah, go ahead. That might make it a little more complicated is that the decoders on the streaming bridge are really specific and like one of the great things that Blackmagic has is they own that whole pipeline from the web presenter to the streaming bridge which makes it easier to have those encoders and decoders work together that might not be possible with the iPhone like it might actually be like a technical limitation where the iPhone only sends H.265 profile main with the wrong settings that their decoder couldn't decode so that's one of the possibilities why we might not see it but yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, next question. Shirag Cheetah from Dallas, Texas. We're deciding between a Blackmagic Design Studio VS versus a Blackmagic Design broadcast camera for a studio. Remote control and remote support of the cameras are top of the list of features we need. Which one will support remote access and control the best? Jonas? Right now, the studio cameras are the 4K Plus. The 4K Plus G2, which also is the one that I have, but with SDIs, which is great. Um, All of those support the API, the new Cinema 6K supported. One thing to also keep in mind is not all cameras have the 
color correct, the resolve color corrector built in, you still would be able to control like lens and like iris and ISO and like white balance, but not the primary color corrector from resolve. Like the 12K doesn't have that. Um, the it sounded like the intention from Blackmagic is to bring this protocol to more of their cameras. It might take a long time to get an update for the cameras that have been released a while ago out, because there's like quite a lot of code that changed from then to now that would need to be adapted. But uh, my understanding is that there is an, an interest in providing this to most cameras. Um, but right now, those are the only ones that support it. Um, one comment from the chat was that the G2, the OSAS, they're working on also having those do the file upload that the app does and SRT streaming. The one that already does RTMP will hopefully get SRT streaming. And like this is, again, where like everything ties together with the Blackmagic OS um, that allows them to do those changes where they don't need to rely as heavily on like producing 20 different firmwares. Next question. Bill Mew in Turnbridge Wells, UK, asking, Blackmagic is adding SRT to the web presenter and ATEM streaming bridge. Rumors are that it will also be coming to the TV studio HD8 that has eight streaming bridges in it. Will we see cameras with SRT? Jonas? And like I mentioned, um, Ronnie posted in the chat that uh, when asked on the show floor, it was amazing how much the Blackmagic people actually were able to say they were saying, yes, we're trying to get that to work on the cameras as well. Good guy. Yeah, it's so funny because years ago, uh, Zcamp came out with this little camera right here called the the E2. And I know a lot of people, they did catch on uh, as far as popularity goes, but this camera already has SRT right here <laughs> built into it. So you can just go to streaming and, and look at this fancy. This is just a web browser. You know, you've got your your image, you've got your ability to control exposure, white balance, focus. So, I mean, anybody can tap into this through a VPN. But yeah, SRT with the URL, you just hit start. And so it's got the encoder built right into it. It was a firmware update that came out about a year ago. But yeah, I think that it's the future. We're going to see more. I mean, JVC has been doing it for a while as well. So there, there certainly is lots of cameras. So Blackmagic is just a little late to the party. JBC, JBC is always the the they always get are ahead of everybody on the feature set. They just are behind with everybody on the chipset, <laughs> like the, the the sensors. It's always like uh, if they just put big sensors in there that they they would do. Uh, I think that they all the innovation because they're very in, the innovations that come out of the JBC cameras is amazing. It's just always like it's a one third inch chip. <laughs> like like it's it's uh, that's the problem that I have with them. But they're it, the JBC is way ahead when it comes to adding the the bells and whistles that we want to see, whether it's you streaming to YouTube straight from the camera, uh, SRT, all those things, they've been way ahead of everybody else on that on that process. Next question. And Ike Potter is here from Hanover, Germany. Do you know which MFT zoom lens Grant Petty used and controlled via the ATEM control software during his demo of the new Blackmagic micro camera? I remember it was on the Olympus Zuko telelens with an inbuilt zoom motor, but don't know the exact model. You know, there's a Panasonic power zooms that that I know that I use with my um, MFT Blackmagic cameras. And so those ones have been, we've been able to control for the last decade, I think. And so we've used a lot of those. The glass isn't as great. Um, I actually don't know of any Zucos that do that. Um, there are Panasonic lenses that will, that will also, um, that are also controllable by the camera. And I think they've talked about those in the past, but the, the, the I mean, the large Panasonic cameras, but there's little Panasonic, um, uh, 
their 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 power zooms and they're like I have like a twelve to forty I use a lot for like an overhead camera. So yeah. those are the ones that I don't know if that's the one they're using, but that's the one that's the easiest to get. Yeah, you're gonna say something, Jonas. There's a list of four that I uh, four MFT zooms. I have like the little pancake one behind me. Then there's the Lumix G X Vario PC. That's the power zoom. Make sure that you actually get a power zoom and not power oasis. That's the image stabilization. Some people have confused those and then are frustrated that they can't zoom their lens. There's a 14 to 42 millimeter, a 45 to 175 millimeter from Panasonic. And then there's two Olympus ones. Uh, there's one Zuiko 12 to 50 and one 14 to 42 millimeter. So yeah, those are the options that you have right now. Next question. Ani Hofsoy from Tromso, Norway. The new uh, firmware for web presenter is promising, but there have been some stability issues due to how it is handling the retransmit of packages in the TCP traffic that causes the buffer to fill up and finally crash. Has this been fixed in the new firmware? Go ahead, Jonas. I, I don't know if that issue has been fixed, but since SRT is built on top of UDP, that's not a problem that you're going to run into with the SRT um, mode um we'll do some more testing with the streaming bridge but what we've seen right now it looks promising that at least SRT is a lot more stable and yeah it it makes a lot more sense for those appliances next question ike potter from hanover germany is the blackmagic micro studio camera 4k g2 comparable or even superior to the panasonic equivalent bgh1 for home studio use jonas so it's cheaper. It has uh, this API, which is better than what uh, Panasonic sadly has. They have their own SDK that is C++ based. Um, the Panasonic has a, a couple more features like 4K HDMI out and uh, sync. Um, you can record internally in like not be raw. Those are like a couple of the features you can uh, use directly as a webcam, but it is quite a lot more expensive. Um, I do think that we'll see the the micro G2 in a lot more home studios because like for a thousand bucks, a camera that outputs uh, 1080p HDMI and like four, a 12G camera for less than a thousand bucks, that's quite good. Um, it, it's going to be hard to beat that. And like I know uh, the Ccam has been like in that space for a long time, but now with Blackmagic, you'll see a lot more integrations with that and yeah, I, I think it's going to be a webcam on in a lot of places. Yeah, I, I think that Blackmagic has, uh, they're slowly pulling all the stuff together. Like you can see it, you know, happening. I think that it all looked like it was separate for a while, but it all feels like it's all coming together in one place. And they're just much better at interfaces. I have to say people think people underestimate the power of interface, but the the UI for most of Blackmagic's stuff uh, is, is much better. Um, and then in addition to that, the APIs, um, most of these camera companies are really tricky about what they're going to, whether it's Sony or Panasonic or others, there's a lot of times you're just not getting all the data and you're not having all the control. They want to hold on to some of that or, or they just want to keep not having to think about uh, publishing it. Uh, and that really is painful for a lot of us. And that's one of the reasons that we've dug into a lot of black magic um, systems is because we have that control on the back end um, in a way that we don't have in a lot of other places. Next question. Peter Belbin, Houston, Texas. 
With the camera API advancements for their cost-effective cameras, I imagine others like Sony will now be under pressure to compete here too. I wonder how long it will take and whether any standards will emerge. Uh, Jonas? The Sony cameras that are available to be used with an API are different leaked than the small black magic ones right now it's like the fx7 fx9 and even then you need to pay like another three thousand to get the back that actually can support it and then like you need to sign ndas and all that um that's a workflow that makes sense for the bigger broadcasters and like makes sense for those i don't see them changing that too much like it's quite an involved process to get all of these sdks at some point try to get all of them just to have a look with Blackmagic, you just go there, you say, download it, and you have it. Like, that's one of the big things. You don't need to sign any NDAs. You don't need to sign away these rights. You know, don't need to worry about it. And Blackmagic actually has a great developer support. Like, that's one of the things. It's not like you scream into an empty forum where you're like, hey, help. It doesn't work. Like, when I had a problem with Player B, I could reach out to developer, to the developer support, and you get a really comprehensive, like, email when we had an issue with the Arduino bot, you write them and they're like, hey, here's like a step-by-step guide. Here's what we can do. Like one of the big reasons why PlayerB can do the auto wall is because developer support helped with that. So like that's also something to keep in mind. Blackmagic actually has an ecosystem to support you, especially as a more smaller company that it hasn't the reach of like, hey, yeah, our system is used by one of the big broadcasters. Help us now. Um, I do hope that like all of them come now to the realization, hey, we all should do uh, REST APIs instead of like a C++ SDK that you can't bundle with anything and need to sign NDAs for. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting that uh, it's not when you go to when you go to one of these conferences, whether it's NAB or IBC. I don't know if they did it for IBC here, but I know at NAB. Blackmagic has this huge booth that's dedicated to all their cameras and all their switchers and routers. But there's usually another booth somewhere that's nearby that's 20 by 20 that is just developer support. Like it is, they've literally given the developers their own space to interact with Blackmagic, to understand how to use the protocols, to get answers in real time at the space. It's really, it's not just a, here's an SDK, leave us alone. It is a, you know, this is definitely part of their business plan. And that really changes how we look at and what we can do with that. Go ahead, Mitchell. Well, this new uh, a world of APIs being traded, um, Jonas, can we look forward to a, a better remote control for our hyperdex than uh, Blackmagic has? Well, he's got Playout B. <laughs> I, mean, I, I know, but wouldn't it be great yeah, if Playout yeah, I mean, B could control hyperdeck? Because I love the Playout B. And the, the hyperdeck is adding more and more features every single day. Like... And it looks like that the new features that are on the highest and the lowest end of uh, the hyperdeck, it's pretty clear that they'll also trickle into the middle now, so you'll have a better interface for it that way already. I mean, I think that a lot of us would love to see a sub-$10,000 EBS from Blackmagic. <laughs> like like when, we think, when I think about hyperdeck, it'd be, be really great if we if we had something that was under 10000 or even under $20,000. Um, you know, there's... Uh, in this ecosystem would be super useful. Yeah, go ahead. That's one of the things I want to see. Um, it doesn't work with this camera because it only returns return uh, records B-Row internally. But one of the cameras that does it, like H.264 recording internally that gets this update that suddenly works as a network share, you could, in theory, hook up your um, the small sh- hyperdeck shuttle who's oh, right. already able to... <laughs> 
play network-based yeah. files. Right. So it's interesting, yeah, because I was thinking about the the you know the EVS runs on an R two thirty two, so it's really easy to see what's going on, right? To to yeah. figure that out. So Blackmagic could literally, if they just built a recorder and despot, you could still use the old EVS controller. Um, and it would just simply build that protocol so that you could do all the controls that you would have otherwise. It'd be really interesting. Is it too much to ask for just a playlist and the way to top and tail it, play it? You're just you're just going crazy. You're just going crazy. Yes, That's all I got. I so for the two years. The funniest thing, Mitch, is the API for the Hyperdeck is now also on that thing. Like you can play in the same way you can play over the HTTP API with a Hyperdeck with that. And like it was so weird to see that at first, but it makes a lot of sense. Like, it can play back its B-RAW files. So in theory, you could use something like that also as like play out from the camera, like yeah. do the replay from the camera, which is a really interesting use case. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, next question. I'm still enjoying the shuttle uh, picture there. Sorry. Um, moving on to our next question from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. How good is the documentation for these new protocols? And is there a developer forum that discusses these new Blackmagic design features? Jonas? The, they, oh, they use the correct standards to document those APIs. Um, it took me a while to understand the WebSocket one, though. It, like, you have to read YAML which is sometimes not the most uh, great thing to read. Um, but it worked well. And like like I showed you all the API calls I had in Postman, you literally download the file from your camera and then you upload it into Postman and it generates you that API. So like I would say the documentation is really well. Um, in the files, you can also see like what's the minimum, what's the maximum. They do have a forum, but I would also say like there's a lot of people working with Blackmagic in our Discord. So we do actually have a development uh, channel in our Discord. So yeah, we'll uh, we'll discuss in there as well. But like the, the documentation is quite good and it comes with every camera manual. If you go to the last couple pages that you probably never went to, there's all the documentation that you would need. And you can definitely expect us to try to drag Jonas and others into labs um, somewhere in the future here um, to talk about this because I think it's really important. I think we could be the largest group that's doing development together. And I think that that, that could be really interesting. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael. Jonas, the API looks powerful. Do you think we'll see a restful API come to the ATEM video hubs? I go, Jonas. So the video hubs don't need it. They already have a TCP-based API. I mean, it would be nice, but like... I would much rather have Blackmagic do it on the ATEM. And like, if this comes to the ATEM, total game changer with the WebSocket API and being able to listen to like commands there. Like I said, we could finally Blackmagic use all the OS. buttons. Yeah. We... <laughs> Sorry. I always look at my extreme and I, I think about how I would redesign it. And well, the first thing would be getting rid of most of the buttons because I don't hit any. Like, there's a whole section of buttons that I've almost, I don't think I've ever hit the ones that are, you know, there's like 12 above every input. Yeah. I, never actually touch those buttons and like like i said the black magic os is like one of those threads that is going through all the products and seeing the hyperdeck api on a camera already should give you some ideas where it could go next which would be really cool and yes then we could like say hey let's listen to all the values in the atom and if we listen to it and we see that you want to change that camera like, let's just send that over the API to an FSHDR or anything right. else. Absolutely. Next next question. 
Bill Mew from Tunbridge Wells, UK. Jonas, with the RESTful API, can we link to studio cameras like the 4G, uh, 4K 2, G2 as if they were a hyperdeck? Maybe use the Playout B to link to them as if they were a video file. Jonas? I mean, that would be one of the things, emulating the hyperdeck TCP protocol and then uh, sending out the fitting HTTP commands that you could do. But like I said, all the HTTP commands are already there to use it. So if you have an integration with the HTTP hyperdeck protocol, you're already there. Jonas, thanks so much for showing up. This would have been a much slower show, much shorter show without you. So we really appreciate you uh, jumping ahead and and, uh, giving us a little breakdown. And thanks to the panelists uh, for for being here. Can't do this without you, of course. It's good to have Guy back. Um, Guy, we're hoping to see you more often. It's great to have you here. Um, And uh, and. Thanks to the uh, to the all the all the producers asking all the great questions and and really digging into this with us. Uh, I think it's a really exciting and and again it was one of those things that I just really wanted to put somewhere so that we could talk about it a little bit more in detail. So we really appreciate all your questions, and thanks to the incredible back end um, that makes all of this happen every single day. We've got incredible incredible tech team that that makes sure that this happens on a day to day basis. There's people who are managing uh, all of the like what's happening. I, I don't know if you know this, but we have a plan. They're not all all finalized. We have a plan for almost every day until the end of the year. So we've got like three or four days left. And, and a year ago, it was me getting up at five o'clock in the morning on Monday and going, and we're going to talk about this. And now it is, um, now we're, we're already, some of our days are already going into January as we kind of start to figure this stuff out. And so, um, so that's a, um, it's really, really been revolutionary for the from the management team. Um, and again, we have this day, the team every single day that that makes sure that this all happens. And then we've got a development team that's uh, that's figuring out how to add the new features that we need and and put this together. And I think that somewhere in the not too distant future, you might see us start testing what we're just talking about here, where we start to put multiple cameras in locations and see. And and this really, I think, could just change the way people look at virtual events and. You know, and, and how we how we produce those. So, um, so stay tuned for for more of that in the not too distant future. We traveled uh, fifty seven thousand miles in the Tlaloc traversal. Um, that is uh, ninety two thousand kilometers, and that's four hundred and fifty seven million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. <laughs> 